Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. In the Beatitudes, Jesus makes the statement, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And we've, we've camped out on that beatitude a little bit longer than we have any of the others because in this we find a principle, a, a life skill that is sorely neglected in our world today, that of peacemaking. What does it actually look like? How can we actually make peace with one another? And, and I've wanted to, to zoom in on this and focus on this because I, I see such a disparity in the world around us between what even we who profess Christ as believers are doing and saying and what we should be doing and saying. And so as we think about this this morning, as we bring this focus on peacemaking to a close, I want you to think about the last time that you lost your temper. When was the last time you lost your temper? I hear some some chuckles out there because maybe it was just this morning. Right, as you're trying to get everybody out the door in the car for church. If you are a parent of young children, that's probably true for you. It was probably this morning when you were trying to figure out who's wearing what and have you eaten breakfast and let's hurry because we're going to be late and all of those things. Maybe for you it was, maybe you didn't lose your temper this morning. Maybe it was last night when the snap went over the punter's head. You know, for, for Kentucky, and he had to kick it out the back of the end zone. Maybe, maybe that was your tipping point. Uh, maybe it was work on, at work on Friday when your boss or another employee who'd been getting on your nerves all week long finally stepped on the last nerve that they hadn't found yet all week long. Maybe it was during your favorite news program when the a reporter reported on the last thing that your least favorite politician said or did. Maybe it was when your pastor said something you didn't like or didn't say something or do something that you would have liked for him to do. That one is is probably very likely uh, that, that he's neglected something of that nature. But the reality is, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, is that we're always a hair's breadth away from anger and conflict, even if we think of ourselves as pretty peaceable people. As we've talked about this statement, blessed are the peacemakers. We've looked at it was what peacemaking actually is. We've even followed a, a biblical case study last week when we looked at how David sought to be a peacemaker in his conflict with Saul and how he exemplified the type of principles that Jesus expects us to live out as believers. This morning I want to give us some final practical ways to make peace when we find ourselves in conflict. And again, as I've done throughout, I'm I'm leaning heavily on the work of Peacemaker Ministries here. Uh, Don't want to uh, uh, be accused of plagiarism or anything like that. These are are principles that I think are very clear in the Bible and this ministry has worked to kind of condense them in, in a way that's applicable in each of our lives. Um, and, and so I want to be upfront about where much of this is, is coming from. But in Colossians chapter 3, we see here 
in Paul's letter to this church what the Christian character is supposed to look like. How we as believers are supposed to stop doing certain actions, stop participating in certain behaviors, and then actually begin or put on other certain behaviors. And and if we do these things, if we exhibit the type of character that's described here in Colossians chapter 3, I think we will find that peacemaking becomes much less difficult for us. And so therefore, if you are able, I would invite you to stand this morning in honor of the reading of the Word of God, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, there Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked, when you were living in them, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's once more turn to the Lord in prayer this morning. Oh God, we are so grateful. Once more, we cannot express enough gratitude for to you for the baptism that we have been able to witness this morning. And indeed, even participate in, as a church body, voting to affirm Sierra's profession of faith. Lord, let us all be reminded of our own commitment to you. Our own commitment to put to death what is earthly within us. To let the old man die every single day. Just as we have been symbolically baptized into death. And Lord, may we put on that new man, that new self that's been raised to life with Christ Jesus so that we might be able to love one another, so that we might be able to forgive one another even as Christ has forgiven us. Lord, help us this morning as we consider Your Word to evaluate our own lives, to identify the idols that might persist deep within our hearts, perhaps even going unnoticed for years. And as we identify them, Lord, help us to confess them, confessing sin to you and others that we have wronged so that we might be forgiven. Lord, where we have been wronged by others, help us to confront faithfully yet lovingly so that we too then might extend the forgiveness that you demand that we extend as your followers. Lord, help us to see these things from your word. And then actually do them. 
so that we might indeed be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this morning. Amen. As we look at this passage, as we continue to look at peacemaking, if we want to be people that make peace with one another and to live at peace with one another in our families, in our workplace, in our church, the very first thing we need to do is to identify idols. Identify idols. Paul writes to the church here at Coloss that they are to put to death what is earthly within them, within us. This is strong language. To put something to death leaves no room for equivocation, leaves no room to, to harbor that secret sin. It means to rid ourselves of it completely and fully. And he lists among the things that we are to put to death within us Sexual immorality, all these things, but ultimately idolatry. It says you need to put to death idolatry because the reality is until Jesus returns, until our Lord comes back, we are all, every one of us, going to struggle with a tendency toward idolatry. We will have idolatrous desires and inclinations, even the most Christ-like among us. It's the reality of living in the flesh, of, of living in an imperfected state awaiting our Lord's return when it says then we will be like him for we will see him but until we see him until we are made like him we're going to struggle in the flesh with idolatry and so we are to put those things to death because idolatry and idolatrous desires are seedbeds for conflict. This is where conflict comes from. The Bible tells us in James. James chapter 4, James writes, What causes quarrels and fights among you? He's asking the very question that is at the heart of this conversation. Why isn't there peace? Why do we need to be peacemakers? Right? When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's assuming there's going to be conflict for us to step into and make peace. And so James says... What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So do you see why Paul uses such strong language in Colossians to put to death what is earthly within you because what is earthly within you makes you an enemy of God. And not only does it make you an enemy of God, James tells us it makes us enemies of one another. Those earthly desires, those earthly passions, those idolatrous once it causes quarrels it causes covetousness it causes conflict between even people of faith it makes us enemies of god and leads to murder fights and quarrels and so therefore in our lives we need to identify the idols that cause this that make us enemies of both god and other people and so how do you do this if you want to if you want to know how to identify idols, well, then we need to ask ourselves a few questions. What is it that we spend our money on? 
What, what would our bank account say? If we just took a look down through the last few months of our spending, where has that spending gone? Is there patterns that you can identify? What do I spend my time thinking about? Where does my mind go whenever I have a spare moment? What, what occupies my thoughts? And then what do I spend my time actually doing? Where, where are my hands going? What am I participating in? As we begin to look around ourselves and, and look at our lives and ask ourselves those evaluative questions, if we see that certain things begin to line up under each of those questions, then chances are we're, we're seeing the idols in our lives. We're seeing the things that are taking precedence and priority in our hearts and in our minds. We might also ask, what are the points of conflict in my life? When I look around and when I see that I'm at odds with someone, when there's conflict in my marriage, in my family, at my work, when I see those points of conflict, there's possibly an idol there. Because again, as James says, idolatry gives way to the quarrels and fights that we see in our lives. And this is how idolatry progresses. There's a clear progression here. First, you desire something. That's what James talks about. You want it and you don't have it. And then you demand it. You must have it. You're going to get it no matter what. And then you judge. So that when other people stand in the way of you getting your idol, or when they disparage your idol, you think less of them. You look down on them. This could be your children, it could be your spouse, it could be a co-worker or a random person you meet on the street. Anyone who gets between you and your idol, you begin to have negative thoughts about them. And finally, you punish them. And this is where that conflict comes from. When you begin to punish the people who aren't serving your idol. You see, all idols want is worship. And ultimately, you will worship your idol and you will demand that other people worship your idol as well. And when they don't bow down to your idol, when they don't capitulate and give you what you want, you punish them. And this is where conflict comes from. How does this work? How do we see this play out in our real lives? I want to give you a few examples, but understand this can often begin with something that's a good desire. You can desire something, you can start out desiring something that's actually good and commendable. And it turns into an idol. You may remember the old commercials that came on TV. I remember them from Saturday morning cartoons, which is also something of the past. But, but where they would come on and they'd say, nobody ever says, I want to be a junkie when I grow up. Right? And they'd say, this is your brain on drugs and crack a egg in a pan and whatnot. Well... Well, nobody ever says, I want this thing to be an idol. I want this desire to be an idol when it grows up. We can start out with good desires. Take, for example, something simple. Just having a clean house. You might desire your house to maintain a sense of orderliness and cleanness. That's a good desire. It's even commendable to desire that. But that good desire can still become an idol. When you begin to judge your spouse whenever they don't meet your demands, they leave their socks lying around. Your kids don't pick up their toys like you told them to. 
And when your family doesn't meet your demands, you judge them and eventually you punish them. That punishment may look like you yelling and screaming, losing your temper because they haven't met your demands of having a clean house. Or you may just stomp around in a silent rage, snatching up the socks out of the floor and throwing them in the basket and everybody just makes way before you like the storm that's breaking on the house. You're punishing them because they haven't satisfied your idol. Now again, it's not wrong to desire a clean house. It's not even wrong to expect your children to pick up. Those aren't wrong things. But we need to continue to evaluate our hearts and make sure that that's not becoming an idol that we punish people for. Or take physical intimacy within a marriage. It's a good desire. It's a good thing to have that. It's a God-ordained desire. But what happens when you start to go longer and longer between experiences of that? Do you start to judge your spouse? Do you start to think poorly of them? Do you grumble against them? Do you begin to punish them by turning a cold shoulder against them, shutting them out emotionally, perhaps even looking at pornography as a way of getting back at them? See how quickly a good desire can turn into an idol. That's why we must be on our guard. We have to constantly be identifying idols and putting them to death because they're so easy to slip into. Listen, I, I realized this just last night. Right, Like most of you all, I was watching the game and, and as uh, my children on occasion would drift in between my line of sight and the television, you know, I'd say, move! You know, I, I need to see this third down. And what's happening when I do that? I'm looking past that which is infinitely valuable and precious and looking towards something of much lesser value. Something that is temporary and fleeting and can be idolatrous. Now listen, it, there's nothing wrong with enjoying a football game or occasionally burning the odd couch. You know, but whenever we allow that to be the center of our focus and attention, whenever we begin to punish people and judge people that don't capitulate to that idol in our lives, we're creating conflict and we're giving in to idolatry. We need to be willing to ask ourselves those tough questions. And so what do we do when we find that perhaps we've allowed something to start to be an idol in our lives? How do we address that? What's the next step? Well, the next step is confessing sin. When we realize that there's an idol, we need to confess it. When we realize that we have punished people for not worshiping our idol alongside of us, we need to confess it. And not just a cheap, I'm sorry, I'm sorry if I offended you. You know, confession to get it out of the way. In the Peacemaker Ministries, they lay out the seven A's of confession. We'll work through these very briefly here. There's more that can be said about each one of these. But, but when we confess our sins, we need to make sure that we are accomplishing all of these things. We need to address everyone involved. And so, if you've wronged your spouse, yes, you should confess that sin to God. But if you have punished your spouse for not bowing down to your idol, for not giving you what you want. You have sinned against them. You need to confess to your spouse. 
You need to acknowledge that and say, I have sinned against you. If your angry rampage was witnessed by your children, you need to confess to them as well. And that's a hard pill to swallow to confess sin to our children. But if your idolatry has affected them, confess to them. Listen, nothing is more freeing and nothing will set a better example for your children or your grandchildren than when you confess your own sin to them. Listen, they see it anyway, right? They already saw what you did. They already heard what you said. So you owning that and acknowledging that that was wrong of you, that teaches them a lesson that's worth its weight in gold. What kind of example do you think it would set whenever you say, listen, I'm sorry. Grandpa was out of line for saying what he did about that, saying what he said about that person in that restaurant. That was wrong of me. I, I set a bad example. I shouldn't dishonor a person made in the image of God. Will you please forgive me? Now, do you think your grandkids, your kids will remember that? You better believe it. They're going to remember that moment for the rest of their lives. And that's going to leave a mark. That's going to teach a lesson that can never be taken away from them. I said I'd work through these quickly, so avoid. Avoid if, but, and maybe. So often we like to let ourselves off the hook, so we use these soft words. If, if this situation would have been different, I wouldn't have acted that way. I said this, but let's think about what you said. Maybe I said something wrong. You know, we, we like to let ourselves off the hook. Avoid these. Own your sin. Own it all. It, if it's sin, confess it and don't let yourself off the hook. We do this so naturally. Admit specifically what you did. Don't just say, well, I messed up. Say, yes, I, I, I spent way too much time looking at that other woman. Yes, I, I yelled at you when I shouldn't have. I lost my temper. Admit specifically. And then acknowledge the hurt. Let the other person know that you understand how your actions made them feel. And if you don't understand that, ask them. Say, listen, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize how this affected you. Could you please tell me how my sin against you has affected you? And then acknowledge that. Say, yes, I understand now. I understand better what I did. Acknowledge the hurt. Accept the consequences. Sometimes we do things. Sometimes we do things that are going to come with consequences. And when we've wronged someone, we need to accept that. If we have to build back trust, accept it. And then alter your behavior. That's what repentance is, right? Repentance is when you're going one way, you're committing sins... And you recognize this is wrong, so you turn and you go the other way. You alter your behavior. This is an important part of confession. You don't, you don't confess and say, I'm sorry, I did this again, but then make no change. You're going to do the same thing tomorrow and the next day. That, that's not truly acknowledging your sin. Or at least not realizing the significance of it. Turn toward the right behavior. And then finally, ask for forgiveness. This is important. We'll talk more about forgiveness in a minute. But forgiveness cannot be given unless it is asked for. 
See, when you ask someone for forgiveness, you're humbling yourself. You're putting yourself in the hands of the other person to forgive. And you may say, well, this is so hard. This is so hard. It, it, it's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant to go through all of these things. And so it is. Yes. Remember, Paul says you are putting to death things that are earthly within you. You are finding idols in your life and you are choking the life out of them by confessing them, by dealing with them. It's hard. It's difficult. But it's worth it. Because it's what our Lord commands us to do. To put to death these things within us. And there's no better way to put earthly things to death than to humble ourselves and to confess them. Whenever we confess our sins, listen, we rob that idol of its power. We admit there's an idol in the room and it's much easier to get it out than whenever we're still hiding it and trying to cover it up and trying to maintain it. But what about when we're on the other side of this equation? What about when we've been wronged by someone else? Well, this is where the second half of this passage comes in. Paul tells us in verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So when we have been hurt by someone, when we have been wronged, we need to confront them. We need to confront the sinner. This is also hard. It's hard to confront someone when they have wronged us. But it is loving. Because if you love someone, you wouldn't let them continue to do something that's dangerous. Right? You you wouldn't let your children stick forks in light sockets. Or go out and play in the road. Right? You would stop them if you see that they're doing something dangerous. You would step in and intervene. When someone is sinning, it is dangerous. Maybe not for their mortal lives, but for their souls. Paul tells us we need to put these things to death within us. And sometimes we need to help one another. We do that by confronting them. So how do we do this? Well, it requires boldness, to be sure. It requires gentleness. It requires a willingness on our part to actually work through the sin that we're confronting them with. But mainly it just requires you to love them enough to say something. Now, if you don't know what to say to someone, if you don't know how to confront someone, Peacemaking Ministries provides a formula that you can use. It's in your bulletins. It's in your notes. And I would actually encourage you to memorize this and employ it whenever you have to go and confront someone because it it serves a number of purposes. It disarms the person you are confronting. It doesn't put them on the defensive how many, how many conversations are ended because you go to someone with a complaint and they get defensive and then it just becomes a shouting match between two people? And we, we anticipate that result and so we never confront because we want to avoid that. But this phrase is, is helpful. Here it is. It says, I feel blank when you blank because blank. As a result, blank. Now, you may be scrambling trying to figure out what to put in those blanks, but let me give you an example here that I think might help. Let's say you're at a family barbecue and everybody's having a good time and and over in the corner there's a conversation that starts out and 
And some of the folks there start making critical comments about their spouse. It's disguised as jokes. But all of a sudden you hear your spouse chiming in about your cooking. Everybody laughing. So when you get in the car, do you say, I can't believe what you said. You always make fun of me in front of our family. Now, is that statement going to get you anywhere? Is that going to help resolve the conflict? No, because we know what's coming next. The person's going to go on the defensive and say, oh, it's only a joke. Lighten up. Or they're going to say, I don't always make fun of you. you know, or, well, what about what you said last week? And so on it goes and, and it just becomes an argument and it devolves and, and nothing productive ever comes out of that. So we, we know that ahead of time and we often then just don't bring it up. And the hurt remains. It goes undealt with. Now imagine this conversation instead. Just filling in those blanks. Look at these in your notes. I feel small and unappreciated when you make fun of me in front of our family. Because I work hard at preparing meals for us. And as a result, I dread going to these gatherings because I fear that's going to come up. I don't want to spend time with our family because I'm afraid you'll make fun of me. Now, do you think that's more likely to be the beginning of a productive conversation? Absolutely. Because you haven't accused them. You haven't overblown the situation by saying you always do this or you never do that. You've only stated the facts. And in fact, you've placed the burden on yourself because you're saying... This is how I feel when you say these things, when you do these things. This is what David did when he confronted Saul. He he invited Saul to examine him. He says, Saul, if I've wronged you, please let me know. He puts the focus on himself. This sentence doesn't lead to an argument. This sentence leads us toward reconciliation. Because you've stated the facts and now they're playing for For you to deal with. It removes the ability for this to become a defensive shouting back and forth situation. And so again, I would encourage you just to to memorize this or to write it down somewhere. And maybe have a conversation with the person that you're in conflict with. As you plan it, write it out. You know? I feel undervalued when you always, or when you ask me, see I use the always word there. See how easy it is to slip into that? I feel undervalued when you ask me to to work overtime but never ask the other person. Because it seems like you're playing favorites. And as a result, I'm thinking I may need to start looking for another place to work. You you can employ this in any situation. And as you do, it, it removes... This bickering back and forth and provides a foundation for a productive conversation. But once you confront, once you deploy this tool in your arsenal, the hope is that ultimately it leads to a situation where you will have the opportunity to forgive completely. Reconciliation necessarily involves forgiveness, complete forgiveness. If we're going to hope to be peacemakers, we must be people who are willing to forgive completely. Look again at at Colossians. He says, Forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you 
must forgive. Forgiveness is not optional for the Christian. And it's not a conditional forgiveness. It's a forgiveness that is in the same way that the Lord has forgiven you completely. Complete forgiveness. Now, later in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to come back to this topic. Jesus is going to talk more about forgiving others. But this is a necessary step in the peacemaking process. Once we confront someone and they confess and ask for our forgiveness, we must be willing to forgive and to forgive freely and completely. Now, whenever we forgive, we need to make sure that we aren't forgiving them yet holding on to the wrong that they have done against us. I've heard many people, even Christians, adopt the motto, forgive but don't forget. In other words, I may forgive you, but I'm never going to trust you again. I may forgive you, I don't have any hostility toward you, but our relationship is over. Listen, that's not true forgiveness. True forgiveness cancels the debt the other person has incurred against us. It not only ends the conflict, but it also restores the relationship. This is what God has done for us. That's why I said earlier, forgiveness can't be given unless it's asked for. Someone must ask for forgiveness before we can actually forgive them because we can't unilaterally restore the relationship. When there's a relationship broken between two parties, we we can't just simply say, okay, we're going to restore this relationship all on our own. It takes the other person. And so you may be in a situation where the other person refuses to confess and ask for forgiveness. And those are difficult situations. And I don't want to minimize that one bit. And I would say in that situation... It's impossible for there to be complete forgiveness. It's impossible for there to be reconciliation until that other person acknowledges the wrong. Now you, for your part, as a believer, you can always be ready to forgive. You can be eager to forgive. You can long to forgive that person. But forgiveness is transactional. It requires an acknowledgement of wrong before it can be freely given and freely received. Once forgiveness is sought, though, true forgiveness makes these promises. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. How would you feel if you go to someone and you ask them for forgiveness? And they say, yes, of course, I forgive you, my brother, my sister, and they embrace you. And then a few weeks later, you hear from someone else. Wow, I can't believe that you said that to so-and-so. You know, they told me what you did. That's not forgiveness. So you you won't talk about it with others. You will not allow this incident to stand between us. These are the promises of forgiveness. And how do we know that? Ultimately, because this is how God has forgiven us. This is what He has done for us. And as Paul says, even as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And what has the Lord done for us? How has the Lord forgiven us? God, it says, has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't tell us when we repent of our sins, okay, fine, you can come to heaven, but I don't want anything to do with you. 
That's not how God treats us. No, He says, I will adopt you as my son, as my daughter. I will invite you into my family and I will give you the inheritance that was reserved for Christ Jesus. That's how God forgives us. Our sin no longer is a barrier to our relationship. It's been removed. It's been canceled. It's been paid for. Once, He forgave the murdering, blaspheming Paul. The very Paul that wrote this letter to the church in Colossians. And He made Paul the world's greatest missionary. Now imagine what He can do with you as He forgives your sin debt against Him. God forgives completely, so we must forgive completely. He didn't let our sin get in the way of our relationship with Him. He doesn't dwell on it. Even though God knows all things, He is perfectly sovereign, He is perfectly just, He chooses out of His goodness to cancel our sin debt against Him through the blood of Jesus Christ. If He is able to do that for us, then we should be able to do that for others who have sinned against us in much lesser ways than we had sinned against God. Now, ultimately, though, we cannot do that. We cannot forgive on our own power. It's only if we have been forgiven completely by God that we will know how to forgive in this way. That's why Paul says, just as the Lord has forgiven you. If you have not yet been forgiven by the Lord, if your sin still stands between you and God because you have never repented of your sins, you have never trusted in Him, you have never asked Him to save you from your sins, you can't do this. You can't be a peacemaker in this way. That's why Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. It's only those who have experienced this forgiveness first and then go and apply it in each of their relationships that can do this fully and truly. And so therefore, if you would like to know today what it is to be forgiven in this way, if you would like to know, if you would like to experience your sin debt being canceled, to be completely forgiven by the High King of Heaven, then I would invite you to come and talk to me today at the conclusion of our service. In just a minute, I I can share with you the wonderful extent of God's forgiveness. And then you too, as you embrace the grace that God has poured out freely, you can be called a son, a daughter of the Most High King. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.